This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, we are leaving the season of Epiphany, and we're beginning our journey with all the Christian church toward Easter. And that space of ground, chronologically and on our calendar between Epiphany and Easter, a good portion of that is called the season of Lent. Now, Melissa's already told you the season of Lent will begin technically in a few weeks, February 18th on Ash Wednesday. And I would really encourage you, for those that have been a part of Grace Point for a while, you know that our Ash Wednesday service is always an incredibly special time. I can't even begin to explain to you how special it is. Ian Crone is always with us, and he does a remarkable job leading us in that. So February 18th, we will begin the season of Lent, the 40 non-Sunday days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. Um, But we're going to begin the sentiment of Lent. Um, We're going to begin that a little early, just a few weeks early, and I'll, I'll talk to you more about what that series will be and what we'll be speaking on. Uh, between now and then, but I want to catch you up just a bit on the purpose of the season of Lent. There are multiple purposes to the season of Lent, not the least of which is the church calendar is instructive. We move through the life of Jesus, the biorhythm, the spiritual meaning of the Christian church. We move from longing for Christ to uh, through the season of Advent to Emmanuel and the Nativity and then to the season of Epiphany and the eruption of Jesus, the bursting of Jesus into ministry, into not only Palestine, but 2,000 years later, the ministry that he's performing in the world through the Holy Spirit today. We move out of the season of Epiphany into the season of Lent, and that's the critical time when the church pauses to reflect on what Paul referred to as the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of, of Jesus. Early on in the church, not only was there, um, because most of the people were non-literate, they were illiterate, so it took things like the calendar and storytelling and church and song to reinforce these things that they had no access to any other way. But one of the other early meanings of the season of Lent was was to take those who were referred to as confirmands or baptismal candidates and put them through a season, now this is going to sound odd to you, but put them through a season of prayer and fasting, teaching and testing, even a bit of refinement, to take those who were appealing to be a part of the Christian faith, I mean, this sounds so wrong to those of us from a justification by grace through faith background, why in the world would you put anybody through a rigmarole before they get baptized? Well, there was a reason. Christian church initially for the first few hundred years of its existence was at odds with the empire. Uh, There were, throughout those first 300 years, varying degrees, fevered pitches and less than fevered pitches of persecution, but they were never anything more than a marginalized religious community in the empire. And then after a few centuries, Christianity swelled to such uh, a large size that the empire, during the time of Constantine, actually moved them from marginalization to the interior of the empire with Constantine himself calling himself a Christian. And so what happened was Christian, Christians actually went from being the persecuted, marginalized folk to actually the interior folk. It, it was not only not controversial to be a Christian, it was convenient to be a Christian. 
And so upon that convenience, there were a lot of people that were signing up for Christianity, and they were not responding to that strong appeal of Jesus. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? They were simply getting their voter registration card punched. They were just filling out census material, and that was bothersome to the church, especially the leaders of the church. And so to really test the sincerity of a person's commitment to baptism, they would teach them and test them and lead them through prayer and fasting. Ultimately, the church expanded the idea of Lent, and I think this was just intuitive, but the church began to realize that even for those who have been baptized, this is a special season. It's a season of reaffirmation. It's a season of recommitment, a season of rededication. It's a season where people who have been baptized maybe for decades come again to this renewal of vows with God. And on Easter, though they might not be being water baptized, they come to this place where they say, I would do it all over again, Lord. I would follow you. And so the season of Lent from that time to this, and I think it still is this, is a time of introspection. It's a time to reassess. It's a time, it's literally a space for us to sort through the stuff of our faith and observe what's happening in us and ask ourselves questions, good questions, like, what do I believe? If this is a season where we're reflecting on the Lord's passion, his death, burial, and resurrection, do I believe that? What do I believe about that? Maybe more importantly, why do I believe that? And maybe most importantly, how does that belief, how does this idea of a death, a burial, and a resurrection, how does that actually impact my life actually on the ground here and now? What does all of this mean? Season of Lent is a time where it's not just a yes or no answer, but most of us are reflecting back on these things and we're understanding that we're actually growing into those realities. The death, the burial, and the resurrection, the baptism, the Christian baptism is too big to swallow it all at first dose, but over time we grow into those realities. So to help us facilitate this kind of Lenten thought, I'm going to begin a series today, and the title of the series is A Vocabulary of Faith. Now, that title is not original to me, and it's probably been used in multiple forms, but I found that title, A Vocabulary of Faith, uh, respectfully and gratefully, I have conscripted it from a book written by Kathleen Norris that was published back in uh, the late 90s, 98. Kathleen Norris wrote several great books. One of them was called The Cloister Walk that a lot of you have read, but she wrote this book called Amazing Grace, and the tagline, the subtitle that a lot of people didn't see was A Vocabulary of Faith. So we're going to be talking for the next couple of months through this Lenten season about our vocabulary of faith. To do that, a couple of linchpin scriptures that I just kind of want us to frame and kind of use as a lens to see all of this. Look at Psalm 1914. And a lot of you could quote this, and I'd ask you to read it with me. Psalm 1914. Let's read it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Key word, obviously, if this is a series about a vocabulary of faith, key word, words. Now let's skip over to John's gospel in the New Testament for a reading. Verse one, you can read this one too out loud with me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Again, operative word there is actually word. 
So in the series, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention each week. There's going to be six weeks before Palm Sunday that we have. We're going to focus our attention on one word, and it's going to be an important word. It's going to be a word that is often used within the Christian vocabulary. It's a staple out of our dictionary. You do know Christianity, like any religion or any group, has a vocabulary, right? A lot of you have heard in, in the poorest sense of that, you've heard about Christianese, right? Christianese is that odd language that Christian speaks that the world rolls their eyes at, that can be condescending and demeaning at times. I'm not talking about Christianese. I'm talking about our dictionary, our lexicon, our glossary of terms that mean a lot to us. Not words that we use as a sword or condescendingly to separate or exclude, but the words again and again in normal faith speech that we come back to and we use. And the reason, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, the reason these words are important to us is because they represent ideas. We call them beliefs, realities that are incredibly important to us. Now, some of our words in the Christian lexicon are totally distinct to us. And I say that, and you automatically think, well, sure, we, Christianity has its own words that are different than everybody else's words. You might be surprised how many of our words are completely distinct to us. Not many. There are very few. That'd be a good project for you to go home and try to find words that are important to Christianity that no other religion or no other group uses. Our words are distinct to us, not in the sense that nobody else uses them, but most of the words, and probably all six of the words that we look at over the next couple of months, our words, though we share them with other groups, the reason I call them our words, I think the thing that I'm noting is that we define them, if not completely, we define them with nuance differently. I mean, when a Hindu person says God and I say God, there's some commonality there. There is also some difference there. When an atheist says God, I use the word God, and there is some commonality there ideologically, and yet there are differences there. So I call them our words not because no one else uses them, but because they're distinct to us in their meaning. So, as I said, between now and Palm Sunday, we're going to look at six words, and I would be interested. Here's some homework for this week. I would be interested to receive a list from every one of you, honestly. I didn't say I'd read them all, but I'd be interested to receive a list from every one of you. I'd love to receive a list from every one of you that answers this question, what are the six most important words of the Christian faith? And I'm not talking about a sentence or a phrase like God loves you and me. No, I'm talking about individual words. What are the six to you? Don't try to speak for everybody necessarily, but for you, from your perspective. What are the six most important words of the Christian faith? Which actually means, what are the six most important ideas? Maybe beyond that, what are the six most important realities? What are the six most important elements? What are the six most important beliefs? What are the six most important words, ideas, things of the Christian faith? And the shift I just made there, I don't want to gloss over that. The shift I just made from words to things, 
from words to realities. That may seem subtle, but it really isn't. Because words, and God help us to understand this, words are only important to the extent that they represent something. Somebody said it was a great preacher, and I can't remember his name. He said, often Christians speak a language, and it is the language of a land in which there are no real inhabitants. Esoteric, impractical, heady, but nobody actually lives there. That's not the words that I'm looking for. Words are only important to the extent that they represent something. Words are more than sounds. Words are more than a sum of letters. Words are incredibly significant, and one way they're incredibly significant is they are the way that we relate to life. They are the way that we link ourselves cognitively, spiritually to our existence. I mean, the way, the way life works is we experience life, and then we form our perception of what we just experienced. I mean, we experience life. We touch and we taste and we smell and we hear and we feel. And after experiencing life, we begin to frame that cognitively. We begin to develop a perception. We begin to find an understanding of what we just experienced. And then those things that we experience and we understand, we ultimately develop labels for those things. Even babies at three and four and five months old, as you're trying to interact with them, they begin to stick their tongue out and intuitively they know that there's something about the mouth and the tongue. They're trying, they're trying to do this thing of label and word. We label these things and as we label these things, the words, these labels actually do a couple of things for us. Internally, they help us frame and organize our life and the universe, the universe that's outside of us and the universe that's inside of us. We develop schema, social psychologists say. A child learns that that fuzzy thing sitting over in the corner that licks him on the face and plays with him is a dog. And then you think your child's learned it all because it knows that that four-legged creature is a dog and you're driving down the road the next day and the child looks out the window and sees a horse and says, dog. Because by its understanding, anything with four legs that has hair on it is a dog. But then you say, no, it's a horse. And that's called schematic development. Our labels help us connect to the reality of the universe. But more than that, maybe not more than that, but just as important as that, our labels not only connect us with the universe, with our own understanding of the universe, they not only give us a filing cabinet and a filing system, but words help connect us to one another. Words are these mediums that hover between us, that help us to connect to one another, to understand one another. Words are those things that bring us together to help us share the gift of life together more effectively. And what we know is that as people live life together, they develop a common language. That's words. We have experiences that are common. We develop understandings that are either common or uncommon. Sometimes with the same experiences perceived differently. But then when people begin to live in intimate, close relationships and community, they begin to develop a language, and it's a common language. And the more specific and refined that language, the more closely the people live together. And the more closely they live together, the more specific and refined the language. 
I grew up in my life with words, and, and you did too, maybe you've never thought of it, but all of us grew up with words that come to find out everyone does not use, right? You grew up in your little world with words that everybody doesn't use. I don't know when that hit me, but um, our Gospel Music Hall of Fame honoree, you even did an album one time called Church. Remember that? C-H-I-R-C-H. I remember when you texted me that and said, I'm doing an album called Church. C-H-I-R-C-H. I thought he'd lost his mind. What's Church? But Church, evidently, am I saying it right, B? C-H-E-R-C-H. And how do you say that? Okay. <laughs> but evidently, in the world you grew up in, that was... I grew up saying something, I, I grew up saying something I thought everybody in the world, in the English language, knew this word. I grew up saying, well, I bound you, he will. What's wrong with you uncultured folk? All, it's a part of the, my family's vocabulary. I bound you, he's going to. Does anybody have any idea what I bound you means? No, it's not promise. It's almost I reckon. It's a synonym of I betcha. Now, I got to thinking about that. Why did our little world, may have been my little denomination, but I know it was my family, why did we come up with I bound you? Because gambling was a... So not only would we not gamble, we would shun the very appearance of evil. We don't want to even use the word. So instead of, it was bad. If you, I mean, it's cussing if you said, well, I bet you. Oh, we don't bet. <laughs> so we said, I bound you. So all my life, I say, I bound you. And I say it until finally somebody is brave enough to look at me and say, come again. <laughs> and I said, I bound you. And they're like, what? what's that mean? I mean, you didn't grow up with that? All my life, if somebody was fooling around, my family said, if somebody said, what are they doing? You say, oh, they're just messing and gomming. How many have heard messing and gomming? Oh, I'm so disappointed in you people. Messing and gomming evidently came from one of my grandmothers. But guess what? I thought everybody in the world used that term. My dad's six brothers, all my life, they would say, well, this here, here, or that there, there. <laughs> Anybody ever heard somebody say this here, here, and that there, there? And I can do that periodically. I understood that if you say this here, here, that means it's not just here, it's here, here. It's really here. And that there, there means it's really there. And I thought everybody talked like that. You know what that's called? That's called a dialect. And those who study linguistics call those, people who say C-H-E-R-C-H or bound you, they call those speech communities. Did you know that the Christian church is a speech community? Did you know within the Christian church, Southern Baptists are a speech community? I can listen to preachers and tell you, I mean, I've been doing it 30 years, I can listen to preachers and tell you, is the guy Nazarene? Is the gal Methodist? I know she's not Baptist, if it's a she. <laughs> but we have speech communities, and speech communities have dialects, and dialects are not just, well, they are accents, pronunciation, 
grammar. In Arkansas, you may not realize this, but have went is proper. We passed it, state legislature. It's not federal, it's state. It's not true, but you would think it's true. <laughs> Dialects develop pronunciations, accents, ways of using grammar, phrasing. And dialects also have vocabularies. In Christianity, religions, countries, regions, families, they develop, they develop these languages that are distinct to them. Now here's where this really gets important for us. The point of all of, of this is that an important part of any community, listen, a local congregation is a community. An important part of any community is relationships. An important part of any community is the dynamic of all the relationships that make up, the matrix of relationships that make up that community. The second thing I want to say is an important part of any relationship. Let's just talk about this one right now. An important part of any relationship is communication. You can't do relationship without communication. And one very primary way that we communicate is with language. One very primary way we communicate, it's not the only way we communicate, but it is a primary way we communicate, is we use systems of speech, language, and central to every language is words, or our words. Words are central to every language. So if community depends on relationship, and relationship depends upon communication, and communication depends upon language, and language is a body of words, then at this point, a community really depend upon, depends upon words. And we all know that an important factor in good communication is clarity and understanding. You, you can't do communication without there being some commonality that exists out of clarity and understanding. And we've all realized in fits and starts and all of our halting, frail ways that this issue of relationships and communication depending upon clarity, it's not the easiest deal. And clarity cannot be assumed simply because two or more people in communication are sharing the same language, right? You can't, just because we're all talking English, assume clarity. Everybody's talking the same language? Not necessarily. Now, why is that? Well, you know, you know this, but let me articulate it. The reason we can't assume clarity is because words are two things. We're talking about religious words today. We're going to be talking about them for the next few weeks. But there are two things that words definitively are. The first thing that words are, they are defined. Words give definition. Now, you're going to think I'm going to contradict myself, but it's, it's not a contradiction, it's a tension. Words are not only defined, but they're ambiguous. They're clear and they're unclear. They are defined in the sense that, and I did this this morning, they're defined in the sense that you open up a dictionary. I did it three or four times. You open up a dictionary and a word is defined because it says in the dictionary, that word means this, right? So you have definition. They are ambiguous 
Because that same dictionary that says they mean this also says they mean this and 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 this. So there's definition, but it's an ambiguous definition. I looked, I just opened it up and I thought, I'm just gonna test this. My eyes fell on one word, three letter word, low, L-O-W, low, simple word, right? 27 meanings in the Oxford Dictionary. 27 meanings for low. I thought, oh, that's crazy. The first three are probably important. The last 24 are so abstract, we never use them. I looked through, I readily, continually, and so do you use 23 or 24 of them. Same three letters, same spelling. So we can say that that word, when somebody says that's low, that word can mean a lot of things. So simply because we're all speaking the same language doesn't mean that we're communicating effectively. And I think all of us have experienced the damaging, multiple times, the damaging effect on relationships that can be yielded by not sharing common definitions for both words and the things they represent. We have different experiences of life and different experiences and understandings of words and we come together and we think we're sharing the same thing and we're not sharing the same thing at all. And we end up both speaking the same language, yet ultimately someone walks away saying, he just wasn't speaking my language. And they're not talking about English or Spanish or German. This element, listen, this element of clarity, this element of understanding, this element of communication, this element of common definition is so paramount for an effective church community. Any communal enterprise or system, whether it's a family, a business, or a church, we're talking about a church today, we have to, we have to do our best to know what one another means. And I, and I include that caveat, we have to do our best because there's no perfect understanding. We don't have to do our best to agree. That's not the deal. Before we can even think about agreeing, we at least have to try to understand what the other's saying. Sometimes we think we disagree and we don't disagree at all. We're just talking wrong. We're using the wrong words. That's when we back up and say, I think our hearts are the thing, same I think our hearts are connected on this, but maybe this is, what do we say? Maybe it's semantics. You know what we're trying to say? We're trying to say maybe we're not as far apart as we think we are. Maybe it's not our hearts that are failing right now. Maybe it's our words that are failing right now because words are incomplete. But if you're gonna be committed within a community, you gotta do your best not to agree, but to know at first what one another means by these words that we use. And then and only then can we go on to the next decision. And the next decision takes a lot of wisdom. After I understand not simply that you're speaking my language, but I understand the words that you're employing. We're on the same page definition-wise. Then we move on to the important decision of how intimately then can we associate? How closely in proximity and task can we associate based upon the sharing or not sharing of ideas?
There's a reason Mark across the street who pastors Clearview and I can play golf together and talk the whole round about church and he can bless everything we're doing or most of it and I can bless everything he's doing most of it there's a reason and I'm not sure but we all have to do our best as we build separate roofs and separate congregations we all have to do our best to make sure that one day when we stand before God God would say I understood that separate space I think if God's going to react to our separate spaces anyway he's probably going to say that we were a little bit too separative but once we understand these things, we do have to make decisions about how intimately can we associate. And simply because we have two different roofs and there's a Southern Baptist there and a United Methodist there doesn't mean that we're saying it's all bad and there's no commonality. But there are levels of association. And that process requires a lot of wisdom. The process of simply knowing what the other person means, whether you agree with it or not, whether you've made a decision about association or not, that decision of stopping long enough to not rush to separation or not rush to the wise decision. You can't make a wise decision if you don't even have proper material to act on. And that decision to pause and to do my best to understand is what the writer of Ecclesiastes said is the wisest of getting with all of your getting what did he say get understanding what did Covey say seek first to understand and then to be understood but oh how desperately we want to be understood oh how desperately we want to be known we rush to these decisions and and we rip apart things that maybe don't even need to be ripped apart. Admittedly, within a religious system, beliefs are central. In a faith system, conviction of belief is incredibly important to us. All the time within the Christian church, we say things like, we believe. I believe. I believe is the easier one. We believe is the hard one. We believe is the stuff that causes us to play golf together and bless one another from across the street. I believe is the thing that causes some folk to get under a roof and say, you know what, your I believe sounds a lot like my I believe. And you get enough of those I believes together and synergy begins to form. Our beliefs or our faith distinguish us and they connect us and I just want to say this to you guys as we start this series it is vitally it's going to be one of the more important things that I've said as a pastor in a while it is vitally important that within a local congregation in order for our efforts to coordinate to be synergistic and complementary and as effective as they can be there has to be a sense of shared vision there has to be a sense of common vision there has to be a sense of common perspective there has to be a common faith now before you get too nervous let me back up and give you the tension that holds that 
That doesn't mean there has to be perfect unanimity. If there had to be perfect vision and clarity and agreement, guess how many people would be in every church? And she would leave every 18 months and find another church. As a matter of fact, part of our faith, you want to know one of the things we're supposed to agree on? Part of our faith is that we don't have to agree on everything. You want to know what we agree on? We agree that we don't have to agree on everything. Now the question is, we just said we agree we don't have to agree on everything, but the intimation is we got to agree on some things. You know what the real work of spiritual wisdom in a community is? What's the difference? Where's the line? What are the things that we've got to agree on and what are the things we've got to disagree on? At some point, that tension between those two worlds, we realize that the vision does not have to be perfectly held. It can't be. But the vision has to be common enough that we are not stepping on one another, working against one another, harnessed together, and keeping us from doing our jobs well and agreeing at least on an end goal. And here's the wisdom in that. There is a tension created because part of Christian ideology, I'm going to tell you something that's central to the heart of Jesus, central to the heart of the New Testament. It's so central that it is the very picture of Jesus. It's called condescension. God is here, we're there, and what happens? God comes to us. Central to Judeo-Christian thought central to Christian theology is the idea of elasticity. The idea of forbearance, tolerance, and I'm about to say a word some of you are going to like, some of you aren't going to like. Listen beyond the word to the meaning. Central to Christian ideology is compromise. Woo, that's not a good word for some of us. Because the last thing you ever wanted to be where I grew up was a what? A compromiser. And yet when you think about the word and what it really means, you see it all through the New Testament. Paul was a master of compromise. Compromise is a loving act that is not done simply on behalf of the individual, but it is done on behalf of the relationship. And it says, I have no idea how I can get there, and you have no idea how you can get here. Is there any possibility that you have space to give? And if you give space, I'll give space. And the Gentile church and the Jewish church in the New Testament, Paul and Peter, James and Paul, there was effective compromises made. And I want to tell you the tension of the compromise. Love demands that the compromise be enough Conviction demands that it not be too much. And if you don't compromise enough, there's a level of unlove and selfishness. And a lot of people have said this is conviction, and it wasn't conviction, it was selfishness. Well, I really believe this. No, you don't. That's a convenient theology that's saving you from doing something that would cost you. Compromise is always this tension between 
lovingly giving up that which cost me, but at the same time feeling that line by the Spirit of God's help to where I don't go beyond love into illicit love and sell my soul to where I can't look at myself in the mirror anymore because I have crossed the line of conviction. You say, can you define that line for us? No. And you can't define it for me. There's a, there's a tension there. How much is loving compromise and how much is too much in the selling of my soul? And so always within the Christian church, always within any congregation, there is this struggle to be really good together. We've got to live in the tension between elasticity, forbearance, and tolerance, and conviction, strength, focus, and resolve. And I just want to say this. Those who commit themselves to that arduous work are wise and mature because it's not easy. I want to tell you what's easy. Polarize. We don't compromise or all we do is compromise. We're not compromisers. They're compromisers. To polarize and say, I don't do it all or that's all I do. Tension and moderation on any subject is always the thing that requires more diligence and spiritual aptitude. And for a church like ours, for a church across the street, any church has to find the grace and the wisdom to hold that tension between focus, resolve, conviction, and elasticity, tolerance, and compromise. And I think that may have been what Peter was talking about when he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't think he was talking about a macabre, horrified fear. I think he was talking about, this is serious stuff. And I want to tell you, I don't know which is worse, to lose your soul by not loving enough or to lose your soul by overgiving that which you really do not have the capacity to give without taking a chunk of your dignity away. Both are equivalent errors. And we need the grace and the wisdom to find the ability to live in that tension. A little homework and a little exercise before we go. <clears throat> That's the setup. Would you send me this week your six words? As a matter of fact, let's do a little popcorn quiz here. Out loud, what do you think when I say Christianity's most important six beliefs or words, what are the six most important words? Start at the top and tell me, knee jerk, what's the most important words? Ferline. Love. Love. Grace, salvation, God. Woo, finally, God was number four. Finally got God in there. Yeah, God is love, but love isn't God. What? Forgiveness, crucifixion, hope. Oh, somebody finally said Jesus. Good, Jesus got in there about number nine on Christianity. That's good. I think he belongs in there, don't you? Compassion, others. Words, most important words. Redemption, resurrection, honesty, 
Faith. What? Mercy. Sacrifice. I, I hadn't heard one yet that doesn't apply. Do that work. We'll do that work together as a church. We'll take six words. We're going to walk through and look at those words. And here's what I think we might find. And I'll try to facilitate this. That we might say God and mean something completely different than the person sitting beside us. We might say Jesus and have experienced and framed. We might, we might say salvation. You think everybody's sitting beside you? If they say salvation, you say salvation, you think that we would get that plus or minus 3% exactly what that means? We're going to walk through, with your help, these six words. Here's another one. All right. Next week, we're going to do the word that I think is the most frequently used. And I'm just going to put myself out there. could be wrong. But I think it's the most important word in the Christian lexicon. You know what it is? No, you don't know what it is. Why don't I ask you? It's God. I think God... And if you don't, man, write me a good letter. Write me a polemic on why you don't think God is the most central word within the Christian religion's vocabulary. But here's what we'll do next week. I'm going to do as best I can to frame, and it will come through the lens of my understanding, but frame what Christianity says about God. But I want you right now to steal yourself for just next 60 seconds. Do this little deal with me. You're laying somewhere in a green pasture, you're in a recliner, bills are paid, kids aren't screaming, everything's fine, mind is clear, and we're going to do the ink blot right now. Someone says, God, don't overthink it, but when I say the word God, what comes to mind? Say it. Light. Love, say it loud. Creator, Father, Gandalf. I'm telling you, this is how we figure some things out about who's in and who's out. All right, that's real. Um, okay, big, heaven. So I say God, and the first thing that first thing comes to your mind is peace. You know, somebody said in the first service, somebody was honest enough. I said, first thing, and they said, scary. And everybody, you know, everybody's saying everything. When they said scary, I was like, can we talk? Because I know that feeling. If you had asked me for the first 30, 35 years of my life, first word, be honest, God, it would have been hard for me to say it, but it would have been less a word and more a feeling. And some of that still you continue to heal from over time, but for whatever reason, for many, many years, when I heard God, I don't know that it would have been a word, but it would have been a feeling. And my visceral response would have been to furrow my brow and then my heart wince a little bit.
It's a pretty scary deal. And when somebody said scary, I thought, you know, I don't think that's good theology, but you know what that is? That's her theology. And where else are you going to start except where you are? When B.B. shouted out Father, I mean, we've talked about this before. When you shouted out Father, you think about those people who had no father or an abusive father that when they hear Father, they're like, uh, I'm not feeling you. So it's a really good thing as we move toward the cross. And you guys will help me. I promise you, we don't have the six words defined yet. Write me this week. We're going to come up with six. Next week, we'll start with God. Jesus will have to be in there. But the other four are kind of open. I think what's going to happen if I were facilitating this and all y'all had three by five cards and you were filling out all the things, I'd be the facilitator with the white sheets up, you know, marking all the words. I think what we would find as a congregation, I really do believe that we would finally assimilate down and there would be some that repeat over and over and over and over. And I think plus or minus 10, 20%, we could finally get down to six and about 90% of us would say, yeah, I would go with that. I mean, I'd move number five, number six, and my number seven, I think I'd put four, but I think, I think we would have, and we'll look at those six every week, and we'll explore them and what they mean to us, because I'll tell you this, as we mature as a congregation, as we move through major moments in our history, communities are only as strong as the relationships. Relationships are as only as strong as the communication. And communication requires not the politicizing of words, but the understanding of words. So that we're not all collegially saying the same word and yet don't ask, don't tell what you actually mean. But these are the things that we hold dear. That kind of energy creates common vision and that kind of common vision creates good gospel work. So that's going to be our process this Lent. You got homework this week. Do the homework. Think about God. We're going to come back next week, and I'm going to explain God to you perfectly. <laughs> Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for these good folk. Thank you for the Lenten season. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life, for this community we call Grace Point. And Lord, help us to find the wisdom of that tension. Help us to know how much and how much is too much. Help us to know where tolerance is loving and where tolerance becomes too inordinate and I cut off a part of my soul. Help us to know how to wield conviction, but to wield it elastically. Only you can take us beyond the dogmatic desperate attempts at polarized black and whites into the full spectrum of colors full of shades and hues, which surely is truth. Only you can help us navigate that tension well. And for that reason, we as a church call again, sweet Holy Spirit of God, lead us, we pray. Ever be present. We pray all of this now. Help us with our homework, and may it be helpful to our soul. May we look at these words and not just think about them as abstractions, but what in the world does resurrection mean to my Thursday afternoon? And what in the world does Jesus mean to my work 
May these things become incarnate words, effective, resurrective words. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said, God bless you. Go in God's peace and be good to one another.